We pick up on Mem Aleph. We're in the middle of the daf, so we're actually a good deal, a good bit ahead. Um, and we start with the Mishnah. And thankfully, the uh, Shemitah discussions are a bit behind us, so we uh, pick up with the Mishnah. So, quite interestingly, we spent the whole parak discussing the um, objects of Lulav and the Esrog. Um, and then uh, where you would do the shaking at Hallel and so on um, and uh, finally at the and then even special cases of uh, the Shemitah case and then finally, finally we get to um, the issue of where what actually is the nature of the obligation so in the, uh, originally the Lulav was taken in the base of Mikdash for all seven days and in the Medina for one day, now what's the Medina? So presumably, in contrast to the Mikdash, it means anywhere outside of the base of Mikdash. However, interestingly, Rambam in Parish Mishnayis, in this case, and in um, one or two other cases, when there's Mikdash is contrasted to Medina, um, says that it refers to at outside of Yerushalayim, that Mikdash really means anywhere within Yerushalayim. Um, so, for example, you have a similar Mishnah that they would blow the Lulav, I'm going to blow the rule. Blow the, that was not meant to front her. Blow, that was just a, that was just a mystery. Right, exactly. They would blow the uh, shofar and Rosh Hashanah that fell out on Shabbos in the Mikdash, but not in the Medina. And for the Raman, that includes not only the Mikdash, but also Yerushalayim. Uh, but here as well, he understands that it means the Mikdash and Yerushalayim. Most, of course, understand that it means literally just the Mikdash. Um, and, and outside of the Mikdash. So seven days in the Mikdash. Why? Based on the verse that says, Take for yourself on the first day. So that's day one. It's a day one mitzvah. And then the end of the verse says, Rejoice before, before Hashem your God for seven days. So there's a seven day mitzvah that is understood to also be a mitzvah of the Lulav. And that is, In front of Hashem your God, which means in the Beit HaMikdash, or according to the Rambam, the Mikdash and its environs, Mikdash and Yerushalayim. But that is seven days. So originally it was a seven day mitzvah in the Mikdash and outside of the Mikdash for one day. In Shachar Beis HaMikdash, once the Beis HaMikdash was destroyed, he came with Ben Yochan Ben Zakai, Shei Lulav Nita Ben Dinash Tiv'ah. Ben Yochan Ben Zakai said that the Lulav should be taken all seven days, not just, um, out, you know, everywhere, because now it would never be taken in the Mikdash for seven days, because there was no longer a Mikdash. So take it everywhere for seven days. Zechel Mikdash, as a way to remember the Beis HaMikdash. And Vishay Yom Hanaf, the day of the waving of the Omer, Kulo Asur should be fully forbidden. So it's quite fascinating why are we mentioning the bringing of the Omer, the waving of the Omer, um, but uh, Tosus says, well, maybe these two were sort of said at the same time. There's a lot of Takanot, Rabbi Yochan ben Zakai made Zechel Mikdash, these are only two of them, these are the two that are mentioned in our Mishnah. So let's take a look at the Gemara. The Gemara, interestingly, completely ignores the fascinating point about the lulav. Is it a one-day mitzvah or a seven-day mitzvah? In a way, that will get discussed in the beginning of the next parak, And it jumps totally just to the idea of Zeichel HaMikdash. Minola and Davdim and Zeichel HaMikdash, says the Gemara. Where do you get this idea that you should do something to remember the Beit HaMikdash? I'm Rabbi Yochanan, I'm Rabbi Yochanan says, because the verse says, because I will raise up a healing like for you and from your wounds I will heal you Neumashem says God because a castaway they have called you it is Zion nobody seeks after it so like bemoaning the fate of Jerusalem after the Chorban so it says nobody is, a- is seeking after it nobody is seeking after it that we should be seeking after it we should be things to remember the Chorban of Yerushalayim I just want to say this is a larger discussion but um, I wrote a uh, an article once which um, to me is uh, like I was, I was surprised that nobody had ever said it before but I think it's a profound uh, like appreciation of what Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai is doing you know we always talk about Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai being concerned about the Chorban Habayis and making sure that it's in the forefront of our consciousness and so on but first of all um, Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai if you think about it was the one that actually helped the Jewish people at the wake of the Chorban transition away from a Chorban, from a, from a Mikdash-centered Judaism to a Torah-centered Judaism, right? He was the one that, according to the Midrash, um, went out to, to wait, make a peace with Vespasian, and he said, you know, say, you know well, the whole story, I'm not saying it's historical, but my concern is more the message of it, that Vespasian at the end of it says, ask for me one
something and I'll give it to you. And he says, give me Yavne and its wise men. And then Rabbi Akiva said, oh, he was so stupid. He should have asked to save Yerushalayim. And the Gemara says, you know, he figured that was a lost cause. And if he asks for that, it's not going to happen. So he might as well ask for Yavne, which to me is a perfect distillation of two different approaches. Like one is always bemoaning the Mikdash and the Korban of the Mikdash. And even at the last minute, even when it's already still a lost cause, all you can think about is what are we going to do to save the Mikdash? And completely is looking at that. And once the Mikdash is, of course, destroyed, then it focuses it's, uh, on the absence of the Mikdash. Whereas Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai was able to have the foresight to know when it was time to cut your losses and to move forward and to take a new tack and a new approach and let's not be focused on the past and on the Mikdash and let's figure out what we're doing to move forward and let's focus on Yavne and like a Torah-centered um, Judaism. And uh, it plays out in other ways as well. Um, the famous uh, story where you know they're walking by Yerushalayim and they see the foxes coming from Harabah and Rabbi Akiva laughs and they say why are you laughing and Rabbi Akiva says well once the prophecy that the, the Mikdash would be destroyed was fulfilled and the foxes were going to go on Harabayas I know that in the end the prophecy that will be rebuilt will also be fulfilled okay which is very nice which is a very positive and optimistic view but it still focuses on the fact that you know we're going to get the Mikdash again that the Mikdash is still very central, you know, as opposed to a similar story with Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai that's reported in Avos to Rabbi Nassan, where they're walking by the Harabayas and they see the Beit HaMikdash is destroyed and Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai is laughing and his students are crying, saying, well, why are you laughing? And it says, well, what, do you think, like, all we have is the um, Mikdash, oh, yeah, it's better than my costume, all we have is the Mikdash, you know, to, uh, as a way of uh, sort of, um, you know, uh, worshiping God. We have other things that are, uh, that are you know, that are, uh, that are equal to the Mikdash because the verse says, you know, because, uh, because the verse basically says, I want your, I want your loving kindness, not your sacrifices. You know, and we have prayer, and we have Torah, and Maishin Tovim, which are, which, you know, which are, you know, which, which God wants, you know, more than the sacrifices. So again, the end point being, not that we have things that somehow are a substitute, and the Mikdash is the, all that it's about, and these are somehow make up for it, but there actually is a different way of focusing where our sort of center of religious practice should be. So Rabbi Yochanan Zakkai actually is quite interesting. So if you think about that, and then you think that he's the one that does Zechel and Mikdash, it's a little funny, except that his Zeichel and Mikdash, and this is sort of my thesis, is actually has the opposite effect of what it ostensibly comes to do. It ostensibly comes to help remind us uh, of the Beis HaMikdash and the loss of the Beis HaMikdash. But if I went around to you today and said, well, you know, why do we take the Lula for seven days, what would your answer probably be? Answer probably me. What do you mean? Why do we take it for seven days? It's a mitzvah to take the lula for seven days, right? It's not like taking it on the other days makes us remember. Oh, we're doing this to remember that we used to have a beis hamikdash and we used to know. Actually, that maybe you think about that when you do the hoshanas and hoshana rabba. But when you actually do this for seven days, it actually says it actually makes you think that who needs the beis hamikdash? We actually have a seven day mitzvah taking the lulav. So it actually has the opposite effect. Rather than heightening the loss of the mikdash and reminding us of the mikdash, it actually creates a religious experience, an expanded religious experience in the op- absence of the mikdash. Right? So it actually has quite, you know, the opposite effect. So that's actually, see, if you go through the various takanot of Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai that are, that are sort of ascribed, given the purpose, essentially for the purpose of Zechel and Mikdash, the real effect that they have is to create a vibrant, and in a way almost like a more vibrant, because now everybody is doing it, it's not just being done in the Mikdash by a few people, Judaism in the absence of the Mikdash. Um, and we retain the vibrancy, we, so, you know, even in its absence. So I think that it's really, there's a very sort of powerful idea between, behind the Yohan Zakai and his relationship to the Mikdash and the effect that these Takanot had. Yes. I, I actually think that there's even a, a deepened impact of this theology when one does know that it's a Mikdash, mm-hmm. which is from Yohan Zakai found a way to institute 
um, uh, phenomenologically that the yearning for the mikdash mm-hmm. is a substitute for its actuality. Mm-hmm. It's a more powerful religious motivator mm-hmm. to yearn for something exactly. knowing implicitly that <laughs> it'd be better than it not be materialized. Uh-huh. All right, that's interesting. All right. Um, something. Okay. Anyway, that's an interesting point. So I, do, I actually think that my my approach is a little different. My approach is that the effect was actually the effect of taking the rule of seven days doesn't doesn't uh, cultivate a sense of yearning for the mikdash. It actually supplants any sense of mikdash. So I actually think it's quite different. But okay, let's take a look. So that is the Zechel mikdash. No discussion about the actual idea of Bulav 1 and 7. We'll discuss that more in the next asur. The day of the waving of the Omer should be fully forbidden. Now, what's the story? The story is that you cannot eat the new grain until the Omer is brought the second day of Pesach. Um, until you bring your korban, the Omer. What if no korban is, brit, is, is brought? So the assumption is, if there's not going to be a kor, kor, korban, because there's no beit hamikdash, it actually becomes permissible at the beginning of the day. Until the essence of this day, which is understood to mean until the day begins. So ironically, if there's no mikdash, it's permitted as soon as the day 16th of Nisan begins. If there is a mikdash, it's only permitted once the Omer is brought. So why did he say that it would be forbidden the entire day of the 16th with no Beit HaMikdash? Let's take and a look. It was brought very early in the morning anyway. Well, it was brought by Chatzot, but not first thing. My time, or what's the reason that he said it's forbidden the whole day? Now here we the Beit HaMikdash. Quickly the Beit HaMikdash should be rebuilt. The Omer, and they'll say, If nowadays you start eating at daybreak of the 16th, then when the Beit HaMikdash is rebuilt, people will say, hey, last year we ate it when the 16th, first thing of the 16th, we had oatmeal of the new grain, you know, uh, first thing in the morning of the 16th. Uh, actually, it's Pesach, so, okay, whatever. We had the kosher of Pesach oatmeal. We had matzahs. Hashanami nechel. So let's also now eat it the first thing of the 16th. The Inu Loyadi, and they won't realize, last year there was no Beis yet. Heyer Mizrach as soon as the, the east became light, as soon as the day broke, it became permissible. Now that there is a Beis HaMikdash, Omer Matya, you need the act of bringing of the Omer to make it permissible. So the Gemara says, alright, so that's why we can't eat it the whole day. So the Gemara says, Divni Amos, when are you afraid? You've got to love these Gemaras that bring in the actual scenario of the Beis HaMikdash, talk about Zeichel HaMikdash being rebuilt for halachic analysis. When exactly are you concerned that the Beis HaMikdash will be rebuilt in this scenario that they might eat the Omer a little bit, they might eat the new grain a little bit too early? You're afraid that the Beis HaMikdash will be rebuilt on Cholamoid Pesach, on the 16th of Nisan. So if it, wasn't, if it was only built later in the day on the 16th, as soon as daybreak occurred on the 16th, the, uh, when there's no base on the, the base on the wasn't built yet, it's going to be finished being built later in the day. So as soon as day broke, the uh, new grain was permissible. So it wouldn't be a problem to eat it. And the assumption being that by the time, okay, so let's say Ella, so the Messiah says rather, the Ivni, the Chamesa. So it was built on the 15th. It was built on Yandav itself. We'll talk about that in a minute. So the Gemara says, so meaning, or it was built any time other than the 16th. It was built uh, six months ago. So, okay, it was built earlier than the 16th. Then at least you should be able to eat it from midday, meaning, why did the Gzeira have to be that you can't eat the new grain the whole day? Just say, wait till midday. Why? Because, Hatzna, we taught in the Mishnah, Harachokim, people that live distant from Yerushalayim, Mutarim could eat the new grain, Mechatzel Sayom Lahalal, starting at noon, with Yishain Basin Mitzatzimbo, because Basin was never lazy to, 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 that, you know, to allow the Omer to be brought later than noon. Basin was always punctual to make sure the Omer was brought at the very, very latest by noon. So it says, look, make up your mind. If it's being built, already on the 16th, so there wasn't time to bring it earlier. But you know what? As soon as day broke, it's going to be permissible. So, uh, so you're concerned that it will have been brought before, if it was if it, uh, built, excuse me, built before. So, okay. But then, then in that case, 
just have a practice not to eat it till noon because we know that whenever the, that, that they made it sure the omer was always brought by noon why do you have to have a practice not to eat it the whole day whatever will happen in the future just have a practice not to eat it by noon and whatever will happen in the future when God willing the base on it this is rebuilt you'll be able to eat it by noon what scenario would you not be able to eat it by noon one minute let's see the Gemara so the Gemara says um Okay, look, Tzricha, you need it for the following scenario. Here's a scenario where you won't be able to have eaten it by, where the basin will be rebuilt, and that day you won't be able to eat it by noon. What's the scenario? The Ivni Bilelia. It was, bu- it was built on the night leading into the 16th. Okay, or right before the sunset of the end of the 15th. Now, what's mm-hmm. that scenario? So, again, it's being built on Yontav and yeah. built at night, which I'll talk about in a minute. But if it's built at the end, at right, at, say, at the night leading into the 16th, so when day breaks on the 16th, um, you can't, the, it does, it's not permissible because there's already a base on Mikdash. You have to wait till the Omer is brought. Fine, bring the Omer by noon. No. If you only built the base on Mikdash and finished it, the night before, then you can't just wake up and decide we're bringing the Omer. In order to bring the Omer was a major process. They had to go out to the fields, they had to identify which wheat they were going to cut, they had to cut the wheat, they had to grind the wheat, they had to do 13 different processes of sifting it. So you needed lead time in order to get it done by noon of that day. So the concern is, if we say you can, you have to w- wait till noon to eat it, the concern is the base of Mikdash will be rebuilt the night before of the, of the 16th, with, and there won't be, and it'll be, because it'll be built, you'll need to wait to the Omer to be brought, but because it'll be built just the night before, there won't be enough lead time, and therefore it won't be ready by noon. And therefore we have to say, don't eat it the whole day. Why Pretty wild be scenario. Why if it's built in the morning? Not, no, if, if it's the morning of the 16th, and as soon as day breaks, then it's mutter medley. And if it's, because there's no base amictus yet. If it was built on the morning of the 15th, then you have a whole day to get ready. But in this, with this one scenario, we therefore have to not eat all day. Sounds quite wild. Now, by the way, Rashi and Tosos both say, well, Rashi really, Tosos just repeats Rashi, I thought you're not allowed to build a base on Mikdash at night. I thought you're not allowed to build a base on Mikdash on Yantus. So if you take a look at Rashi, so, well, that's what Rashi's answer. So if you take a look at Rashi, you probably remember because Rashi said it. So Rashi, if you look at Rashi, wrote the two lines from the bottom, he says, um, and also the line before he says he's not built at light I'm just two lines in the bottom of the Rashi it's in the middle of a long Rashi the, the future base of interest that we're looking for, towards is already built and uh, finished and it's, re- and it's going to be revealed from heaven that's going to be built by God by, you know, which is quite fascinating in general because about this certain you know, approaches towards redemption are you just waiting for it all to come from heaven how much do human beings take a role in redemption you know, nothing at all relevant to issues nowadays about Zionism and the roles that we have but it's historically you know, it was actually true about, uh, I know it's Purim time but it was actually true about Hanukkah as well you know, the Hashemunayim were, you know, and uh, obviously were very righteous, but there were even like Frummer people around that said, you know, in the way, Frummer, that said, you know, God will redeem us. If God wants, uh, you know, salvation, then God is going to do it. We shouldn't be playing a role in, you know, in and this. Don't just make uh, yourselves you, on Well, that's true. <laughs> so anyway, that's quite a fascinating uh, explanation of this tomorrow. Yes, Michael, you had a question. I, I, I just, uh, yeah, as we discussed in the past for, in Yom and other places, Gemara imagines that all of the things that went down in the Basin Mixers were ultimately under the auspices of Basin. So, sort of imagines that the rabbis were sort of in charge of the base of Mikdash. Okay, so now the Gemara says like this. Um, Actually, that's wrong. It's not a Gezeira. When he says, don't eat it the whole day, he's following the position of Reb Yehuda. It says, biblically, you're not allowed to eat the new grain if there's no Omer the entire day. It's not like we've been assuming that it's allowed at day break. It's, a le- it's forbidden the whole day until the end of the day. Because um, the verse says, you shall eat no grain until the, the, the essence of this day. Until the very essence of the day. And Ad means up to and including. So the new grain is forbidden up until and including this very day. 
So the new grain is forbidden for the entire day. Okay, so therefore, because we don't say no, Essa means the day itself, but up to the day or up to and including the day. Yom Hayom means the day, so Essa means something other than the whole day. No, the entire day, but until that means the very essence, the entire day. But is it the key is whether it's up to and including or up to and not including? So he says it means up to and including. So it's forbidden the entire day unless there's the Omer, then it's permissible early. Which, by the way, there's a certain logical power to that that the bringing of the korban makes it permissible sooner right. as opposed to the other approach where the bringing of the korban the presence of the korban made you have to wait more here the bringing of the korban makes it permissible sooner says does he really hold like him he argues on him said the day of waiting should be forbidden, for, totally forbidden this is a different Mishnah not ours um, and Yehuda, and in that Mishnah Reb Yehuda responded to him now he didn't really respond to him because he didn't live in the same generation Reb Yehuda ben Zakai was at the time of the Korban Reb Yehuda was a student of Reb Akiva so he was like in the year 150, 170 something like that but Rashi says he's like responding to his position so Reb Yehuda responded to this position and said, well, what do you mean it's, ra- it's rabbinically forbidden the whole day? It's a takana to be forbidden the whole day. Biblically, it's forbidden the whole day if you don't have an omer. Until the very day itself has passed. So the said, no, Reb Yehuda, who the katai? Reb Yehuda misunderstood what Reb Yehuda Menzakai was saying. Who is Sarah Midr Abban? He thought Rabbi Yochanan Zakkai was saying rabbinically it's forbidden the whole day now that there's no base on Mikdash, Kamar. The Lowy, that's not what he meant. Midoraisa Kamar. Rabbi Yochanan Zakkai meant now that there's no base on Mikdash, biblically it's forbidden the whole day. So the Gemara says, Vahit King Kamar. But it says Rabbi Yochanan Zakkai established an edict meaning established a new position. So it sounds like it is rabbinic. If we, it's not, it doesn't sound like it's a biblical idea that it's forbidden the whole day. So the Gemara says, no. My Hitkin, what does Hitkin mean? Darash Hitkin. It means he expounded the new law and established the practice. But he established a practice that he believed was a biblical practice. There had been a base on Mikdash, so nobody ever needed to know what was the halacha if there isn't a korban. Then the base on Mikdash was destroyed. So he expounded to the masses and taught them that now that there's no base on Mikdash, it's forbidden the whole day. But he wasn't teaching them a new rabbinic edict. He was teaching them what the halacha is. The halacha is, without a base on mikdash, it's forbidden all day. So that leaves that position, although it's a stretch on the word hitkin, makes more, at least makes a certain amount of sense. It makes sense, A, that the korban makes it permissible sooner rather than later, and it makes sense that you don't have to create some crazy scenario like the Gemara did, that we're afraid the base on mikdash will be built dafka the night before, and that'll lead to a problem. Okay, because it's hard to understand what this issue is. What, what would be this concern that he would have to say, don't eat it the whole day? And according to this, it's a biblical halacha rather than a rabbinic concern. No. Okay, we'll do it when we learn Menachas. Now, so we mentioned that the first day is biblical everywhere. The remaining seven days are only in the Beit HaMikdash. Now we're going to talk about what happened on, will happen on the first day that falls out on Shabbos. Now we know we don't take the Lulav on the first day that falls out on Shabbos. But in the Mishnah, the, both this Mishnah and the, next, and the first opening Mishnah of the next Perak will say that they took the Lulav when it fell out on Shabbos. Okay? What? That's what it should be. Yeah. Well, that's what it was. That used to be that they would take the Lulav when first day, when, when Cholmoid fell out on Shabbos, they would not. Because that would only be rabbinic. Or even in the base of Mikdash, they wouldn't do it because it would only be biblical in the base of Mikdash. But on the first day, which is biblical everywhere, they would take the, mik- the Lulav even when it fell on Shabbos. So let's read that. What? No. Let's see what they did. Not a carry, but you would take the Lulav. Let's see what they did. The first day of Yom falls out on Shabbos. Everybody would bring their lulav to the synagogue. Again, fitting into the previous uh, Mishnah that takes it for granted that the primary place in which you're taking the lulav is in synagogue during the Hallel. Right? Remember, just start the previous discussion. Just where do you do the Nanuim? What if you came home and you didn't have a lulav in your hands? Oh, you can take it at home. But the basic assumption is you're taking the lulav at, in, in Shul at Hallel. So what would you do if it's falling out on Shabbos? You can't carry it to show on Shabbos. So you would go ahead and you'd prepare ahead of time. Every, on Erev Shabbos, everybody would prepare and bring their sh- sh- lulavs to show. 
Lamachras, the next day, Shabbos morning, Mashkimu Mubayim, everybody would wake up early. We'll see why you want to be early. Because you would want to not have to go ahead and fight and deal with the crowds. So the early bird gets the worm, and I guess the early uh, congregant gets the lulav. So you would go ahead and you'd recognize your lulav. Maybe you'd have a little, uh, you'd have it in a container with your name on it, and you would take it. Because the sage has said, you can't fulfill your obligation with your friend's lulav. So therefore, it's in show because you had to prepare it from before Shabbos, and you have to recognize yours because you're only yotze with yours. In the other days of the holiday, you can use your friend's lulav. Fine. But not on this day. So this day you had to identify yours, and it was already in show, you weren't holding on to it from ahead of time. Let's say you forgot, you didn't leave your lulav in show. It was the first day yantiv. It happened on Shabbos. Again, we're assuming people take the lulav on the first on on first day yantiv, even on Shabbos. So you're taking your lulav, but you didn't bring it to show ahead of time, and you accidentally walked out of your house with it. What you got to go to show in the morning. So you take your lulav off the table, and you walk out of your house, and then you realize, oh my gosh, it's Shabbos, and I just carried on Shabbos. I have my lulav in my hand. So what do you, what's the halacha? Pater. You're not allowed to do it, but you're exempt from a korban because you took it out with permission. This is Rebbe, uh, Rebbe Yossi's general position, which is actually, it's also the debate of Rebbe Eliezer, Rebbe Yoshua, of Tabidvar Mitzvah. You, act, you were doing a mitzvah and you accidentally, not intentionally, accidentally did an Aveira in the context of doing the mitzvah. And often it relates to Shabbos. You know you have to perform a bris milah, you're in Moel, it's the eighth day, and accidentally you give a milah to the wrong baby. Okay, you know you're supposed to take a lulav and it's yantav on Shabbos, and it, yeah, this was at a time when they would take the lulav on yantav when it fell out on Shabbos, and, but, so, but you're doing the mitzvah taking the lulav, but you accidentally walk out of your house. You didn't leave it in the show ahead of time. So you're being toed bidvar mitzvah um, that exempts you from bringing a korban. Obviously, you're not allowed to do this chilul Shabbos, but if you accidentally did, the fact that you were being osek the mitzvah exempts you from the obligation of the korban. Yes. Didn't we see in Arum there was some evidence that there was an Arum in Yerushalayim back when? Who we says we're in Yerushalayim? Rabbi Yossi was in Lod. Yeah, I'm talking about the, the, when they were bringing them in the temple. Oh, yeah, oh, you mean why they have to bring it? Oh, that's a good question. If you're in Yerushalayim, why would you have to bring it to the temple? You could put it anywhere in, the, in Yerushalayim. Yeah, but this isn't necessarily Yerushalayim. We'll talk about that in the next mission. This is Beit Knesset, so this would be okay. not necessarily assuming you have a wall, a walled uh, city. Okay, Minani Mili, where do you get this idea from, the difference between the first day and the rest of, excuse me, that, um, uh, well, let's take a look, that, you, that there's a mitzvah to take it on the first day and it has to be yours. This issue of ownership, something we've said before. Where do you get this from? We taught, you shall take. Every individual has to take. As opposed to meaning one person takes for everyone. Now, um, this actually is interesting. Um, and it's important to know in terms of hermeneutics, the difference between the singular language and the plural language. If I said, as opposed to singular or plural, you might think lekachta means you as an individual have to take. Lekachtem maybe means you as a community, and maybe one person can take for everybody. But basically, it's the exact opposite. Um, the, for example, think about the mitzvah of counting. There are two mitzvahs of counting in the Torah. One mitzvah says, Usfartem lachem imachrat ha-shabat miyom aviyachem et omar tznufat shabashapasat shmiotiena, counting the omer. Usfartem, blush and rabim. And the other one says, Counting the years for the Yovel, the Safatar Lecha, singular. Which one do we do as a think is an individual obligation? Counting the Omer. Which one is only an obligation on Basin? Counting the Yovel. So actually, the plural language means you, meaning all of you guys. It's in the plural. Every single one of you, all you guys, all you people, every one of you, that's the plural language. The singular means the entirety of you as one corporate entity. I'm speaking to the whole room, and I'm saying you in the singular, meaning you as one corporate entity. So therefore, it's done by the base game for everyone else. That's the counting of the Yovel. As opposed to the plural language, which means all of you as individuals. So that's what the Gemara says. If it had said, one person could take the uh, lula for everyone. But means all of you as individuals have to take it. So that's the first point of every individual has to take a lula. Lachem, you, Michelachem, it has to belong to you. Which excludes a borrowed or stolen lula of an Esra. 
obligation with your friends who love you, even if it's borrowed, um, certainly not if it's stolen. And that's by Yom Harishon, that's only on day one. Okay. Elinke Nasna Lobimatana, unless it's given as a gift. Umaisa, and then there's a story, Rebbe Gamliel, Rebbe Yoshua, Rebbe Eliezer, Rebbe Nazari, Rebbe Akiva, all these great rabbis, Shayubayim Bisvina, they were traveling on a ship. There's actually interesting speculation about where they were, they were traveling, because there was a certain, around that time, there was an intercession of rabbis with the Roman government, someone who was associated with that. Anyway, the Lohaya Lulav, El Rebbe Gamliel, and Rebbe Gamliel was the only one who had brought a Lulav with him. Lulav and Esra, it means, in the whole thing. You see, we're spending an insane amount of money, an obscene amount of money is not a new thing on the idea of Lulav and Esra. He's spent thousands of Maybe, maybe he spent it because, because he had, you know, it's like, it's like when, you know, when you have to pay those uh, highway banded prices because when you stop, it's like a rest stop on the highway. Where else are you going to buy? Who else is selling Lulav and Esrogim on a ship? The one guy <laughs> who had the Lulav and Esra was selling it for a thousand dollars. Anyway, not Lulav and Esrogim the Yosvabah. So Mungliel took it in was Yotze. He didn't lend it to Rabbi Yoshua he, because that went to Yotze. He gave it to him as a gift. Not um, Rabbi Yoshua. Rabbi Yoshua took it. Yotzeba was Yotze. Fulfilled the obligation. Then he turned around. So it's, we're, we're right now, right? It's Purim and it's going to be Shalach Mana. So it's uh, already the idea of re-gifting. Right. Re-gifting was already in the thought of that way before us. Okay. So he re-gifted it to Rabbi Yoshua. And then Rabbi Yehuda Benazari gave it as a gift to Rabbi Akiva. Not for Rabbi Akiva, Yatsabo. Rabbi Akiva took it and was Yote, but they all gave it as gifts, not as loans. And then Rabbi Akiva gave it back to Rabbi Gamliel, because you would expect Rabbi Gamliel would like to have his $1,000 Lulu of an Esther back. So the Gemara says, Lama li lamema hechzero. Why do you have to tell me he returned? I mean, that was an interesting side note, but it's not halachically significant, is it? Yes, it is. No side of Orcha Kamashmon. It's telling us something in passing. It wasn't just Rabbi Akiva as the kindness of his heart gave it back. We're going to assume that the gift was originally given on the condition that eventually it gets back to Rabbi Gamliel. And therefore, because Rabbi Gamliel wanted his $1,000 lula back. So you could say, if you give me a gift on the condition that I give it back, it's not a gift, it's a loan. And maybe I'm not Yotze, right? No. Even if, it's on, even if it's on that condition, it still is considered a gift. You have to fulfill the condition, but it is a status of a gift, and therefore you are taking something that right now is yours, and you are Yotze. Well, that's the question. Yadam like what Rav said, Here's this Esrog on the condition that you give it back to me. Not lo Yatsabo, you take it in your Yotze, because now it's yours. It can't be a loan, it has to be yours. Zero yatsa. If you returned it, you fulfill your obligation because you because fu- you satisfied this condition. Lo zero. If you did not return it, lo yatsa. You did not fulfill your obligation. Why? Because if you didn't return it, then if the whole d- gift was a conditional gift and you didn't return it, it turns out that it was never a gift. So then, when you were taking it, it was stolen. Right? It was only given you as a gift on the condition that eventually you would return it. By the way, we see from the end of from this story that at least in Reverend Leo's case, the condition wasn't that the first person returned it. The condition was that it be returned in the end. Whoever in the end has it, eventually it be returned. That at least was Reverend Leo's condition. But that's an idea that you would have said, ah, come on, give me a break. If that's what's going on, it's a loan. It's not a gift. And the Chiddush of Rava, which is being read into this story, is that no, it actually does constitute an actual gift, even though there is a condition. Now, there's other Gemaras that raise questions to what degree is it fully considered a gift or not that Tosus tries to work out. But this generally is our assumption. Michael asked the question about a case of Kiddush and other types of cases. All those cases get looked at. But this is, this is at least our application here, and this is very relevant Lahalacha. Because somebody doesn't have a Lulav and Esau, and want to borrow it on the first day of Yantav so you can just give it as a gift without saying here's a gift Amanas to Tachliya on the condition because hopefully people will sort of understand like was probably the Peshat of the story of Rabbi, of Rabbi Gamliel but also you can say it's Matan Amanas Lachliya and therefore you know that you're going to be Yotay I think the rest of the second I just want to say two points about Tosos if you look at Tosos it makes two interesting um, relevant applications Tosos says like this the top so he says, If it was a, a partnership Esro, you're also not Yosef. You have to be the sole owner. He says, and then like skipping like four lines down, he says, for like five lines under the word Ella, he says, This is what they used to do in Europe. 
they would buy a lulav and esrog, uh, everybody would chip it together and they, they would all buy it with communal funds because nobody could afford one by themselves. So he says, how does that work? If it's owned communally, you're not Yotzi, you have to own it privately. So, the implicit stipulation is we own this communally and when it's your turn to take it where everybody else is giving it to you as a matana manas then you're done and then you give it to Michael and then everybody gives it to him as a matana manas and so on and so forth so Tosef says this, the reality was it was communal but we have to assume there was some implicit or explicit stipulation that meant that people would own it individually when it was their turn this plays out by the way when you take on a shul palace you make a bracha or not because you don't make a brach on a borrowed talis, and you know, and how does it play out? of this similar idea. Well, the, the assumption is that if you take it and you want to use it to be yotze, that the show gives it to you as like a matanam or something, so that you can make the bracha. Um, you know, anyway, it plays out interestingly in similar types of scenarios. Talking about kiddushin, there used to be a ring. You ever go to the Jewish mu- Jewish museums and you'll see these very these like big rings, like they have like built, they're like these towers built on them or whatever. Anyway, they were used as communal wedding rings. Well, how do you use it since you have to own the money, the ring that you're giving. And it was a similar type of a thing. It was owned by the community, but when it was your turn to use it, it became yours. So Tosos number one just sort of like reflects that re- reality. I'll just read the rest of Tosos. He says, um, Since you purchased it for the purpose of everybody being Yodse, even though they didn't explicitly say when each person's turn it would be a, a gift to that person, it's assumed to be that that was the implicit understanding and intent that we're operating with that each person gets it when it's their turn. Now that being said, although Tosos here just said we can sort of make it an implicit intent, the next Tosos of here's your Esoga on the condition you return it to me has a whole problem because there's other Gemaras that say that when you make stipulations, if you do something on the condition of X, that you have to satisfy a lot of technical conditions to make it a binding stipulation. Like you have to have, it's learned out from the, what's called <coughs> the way when Moshe said, well, if you go in and you fight with, you know, your brethren, then you can come back and inherit this land on Abraham Yarde. And in all of these ways, first he said, if this, then that, and if not this, then not that. A yes, and he said a yes clause and a no clause. And he first he said the condition, and then he said the action. And there's all these requirements of, in order to make binding stipulations. And the question is when you need to satisfy those requirements or not. Um, and Tosos, so very often we say you don't really need to do it as long as it's implicitly your understanding and so on. Anyway, the next Tosos suggests that maybe you have to make all those stipulations. If you look at this at the beginning of the next Tosos, Heilach Echrog Zeb he said, "Bushum makom ein medakti kashatul shono lahakdim tonight lemasev it's tonight kafol vehein kodem lalav." Those are all the technical requirements of making conditions. So you have to first say the condition before the action. You have to double the condition. You have to say the yes clause before the no clause. Afagav the bahachemayri that you would have to do all of that. But it's just not going into that detail. So this also says that, yes, if you want to give something you have to make sure you satisfy all of the technical conditions of making stipulations. Other Rishonim and at other times Tosa says you don't have to satisfy all those conditions. That if it's that, that sometimes those can just be assumed to be your intention. And that's by the way what we see in the previous Tosas, right? They bought this Esrog in partnership and he says even without saying anything you can just assume that they wanted to operate with a certain type of parameters. So that's basically this idea of Matam Nasahasu, which as I said plays out really on Sukkot when you lend people, lend, give them Matam Nasahasu on the first day and can play out other ways about communal things Shared, but that in, you, in order to be Yotze, you actually have to have you, com, you know complete ownership over. Yes, Michael. Maybe difference Yeah, we'll discuss that later. But whether Amanasahachli just means the act of giving it back, or does it actually mean being making it back, and so on, and whatever. We'll see that later. Gemara discusses the issue of a cut. Yes. The yeah. Or, or if you're just getting a Leah and you put on the Shul's Talis or whatever, or you're, you know, you're getting up to Davin and you're putting on the Shul's Talis, most people don't make a bracha. They just put it on. I mean, I, people, because you don't have to, right, take the ownership over it. That's correct. Uh, any problems with transferring ownership on Yom Tov? 
Um, well, clearly not. Um, you're allowed to. You're allowed. You're, you're allowed to be machnas things that are l'tzorach Shabbos and l'tzorach Yantiv. So that normally practice. For example, I'm going to your house. and I'm going to give you, you know, bring you over some a bottle of wine or something. So if I'm real firm, I give it to somebody else and have them be it for you, so you don't have to be it on Shabbos. But the reality is that if what I'm giving you is something that you can use on Shabbos, and then I'm allowed to be machnas you on Shabbos. Okay. So now the Gemara says like this. Um, okay. Lamely the main bar, why put you know, it's a very colorful story, but why do you have to point out that little detail that he spent a thousand dollars on it? So the Gemara says, um to tell you how dear the missus were to them, how much money they were willing to spend just to be Yotze Lul of an Esro. Amalay Marbar Ravashi. So Marbar Mamer said to Ravashi, um Abba my father, um, Amemar, when he, he would be holding on to his rule of an esrog when he was davening. I says, Meisfei, I'll ask you on that. A person should not be holding tefillin in his hand, meaning not wrapped on his arm, but holding them in the palm of his hand. Or a sefer Torah in his chest and davin, because you'll be distracted. You'll have to focus on holding on to them, and you won't be focusing on your davening. Or the reverse, if you focus on, focus on your davening, then you'll let them drop. Below Yashkin Bahem, it's a separate point. You should not be urinating when you're holding on to your tefillin in the Sefer Torah. Below Yishin Bahem, you shouldn't be sleeping, not only when the tefillin is wrapped on your arm, but even if you're just holding it in your hand. Lo Shinas Kevra, Lo Shinas Arai, not a permanent or a temporary sleeping, because if you fall asleep holding on to the tefillin in the Sefer Torah, you'll drop them. Ziyamar Shmuel, and it's not just limited by the way. You'll say, well, maybe that's tefillin in Sefer Torah. No, it's not limited to that. Shmuel also says, Sakin Vikara, a knife or a plate, a dish, the a kikar umaot or bread or money, them are the same issues. All, all these are things that you're afraid you're gonna drop, even though they're not sanctified objects. You don't want to drop your knife on your foot, you don't want to drop a plate, it'll break. Right? You don't want to drop bread, it'll get dirty. So you see, if you're afraid you'll drop something, you can't hold it while you're davening. So how can you hold a lulav while you're davening? So the Gemara says, Chosam lav mitzvah vitari. There, you're not doing a mitzvah by taking, by holding on to these things, and therefore you're distracted. Hacha mitzvah tari. Here you're doing a mitzvah and you're not distracted, which is pretty funny. Although you're doing a mitzvah, why does it mean you're not distracted? You still don't want to drop your lulav and esra. What makes you not distracted? So if you take a, a look at Rashi, Rashi says like this, Lav mitzvah about eight lines from the bottom, Ochzan, it's not a mitzvah to hold them, all these other things. And therefore, psychologically, it's like a burden. It's a distraction. Therefore, you're distracted because it is, literally, the burden is heavy, but it's also like metaphoric. Right? Psychologically, it's a heavy burden. Oh, I've got to be paying attention to holding on to this stuff. The feel you're taking it, you're holding on as a mitzvah. mitzvah You're like you, you, you're you're thrilled to be doing this mitzvah. You don't psychologically, it's not a burden, and therefore it's not distracting to you. Which is again pretty funny. You got to be careful not to drop it. But somehow psychologically, if you're like thrilled to be doing it, then it actually somehow is not seen as a concern that holding on to it will serve as a source of distraction. Okay, so now the Gemara says like this, Tanya, we turn the Bryce up. Maybe Elizabeth said, Omer, this was the practice of the people of Yerushalayim. Adam Yotze mi beisav v'lulavo biyado. You'd walk out of your hand, you'd be holding on to your lulav. Holech l'beis ha-knesses, v'lulavo biyado. You go to the show, holding on to your lulav. Korek kriyat shema, mi palel, yotzein kriyat shema davening, v'lulavo biyado. Even when you're davening, even when you're saying shema, holding on to your lulav. Now, when you got an aliyah, or when you had to, when you're kohen and you did duchening, then you would put it on the ground. Duchening, obviously, you need your hands free. But even when you're getting an aliyah, um, you, you, you have to roll the Torah open and close, right? You're not just getting an aliyah, you're reading from it, so you're closing it and opening it. So you need your hands free. Now you're done davening in show. What are you going to spend the rest of your day doing on Sukkot? You're going to do mitzvahs the rest of the day. So you're going to visit the sick and to console the the, 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 the mourners. You come with me with your lulav. Um, you see, this is the first uh, sort of source of Chabad. You walk in you're to, the, to, to the hospital. Did you take Lulav and Esra again? Okay, fine. Anyway, you go into the Beis HaMedrash 
Then you send it home. Why do you send it home? Because now you're going to spend the rest of the day in the base medrash. So you don't want to leave it on the floor because that's not respectful. So then you get one of your servant or your kid to bring it home. Why didn't you hold it with you? Because when you're learning, then actually it is a distraction. When you're interested, when you're davening, not, but when you're learning, it is. My, so anyway, my kamash, what does all this teach me? How zealous or they were with the mitzvot. Now, part of the idea here is not just you're holding on to it. Wouldn't, for example, say, we never see like, you should hold on to your shofar for the whole day of Rosh Hashanah or go around all of Hanukkah holding on to like your Hanukkiah. Because here, the holding on is actually the act of the mitzvah. So you're just continuing to do the act of the mitzvah the whole day. Even though you're yotze in that first moment, you're holding on to it as the continuation of the mitzvah throughout the day. And let's read a little bit more. We have a little more time. Let's see if we can get to the Mishnah. Rabbi Yossi Omer Yantav. Now, Rabbi Yossi said that if you accidentally walk out of the house on the, again, this was assuming you would take it on Yantav that was on Shabbos, and you accidentally walked out of the house on Yantav Shabbos, you would not be, you would be exempt from a sin offering because you were doing a mitzvah. Amar Abayi, said Abayi, Lo shanu elo shelo yatsapo. Well, it's only true that you are exempt from your sin offering if you have not yet been yotze. So you're still in the process of doing a mitzvah. Okay? Aval yatsapo, if you're already yotze when you took the lulav at home and then you stepped out of the house. Well, well that's what I was question. Chayav. Then you are chayav a, a, corp, a sin offering because you're no longer, you know, in the process of doing a mitzvah. We just learned before you could still be doing a mitzvah, but once you've been yotze already, um, you're like, you're no longer, you know, distracted by the mitzvah, involved in the mitzvah. Once you're already yotze, it's behind you, and you cannot, and the fact that you're still carrying it and still doing a mitzvah does not exempt you. So the Gemara says, well, what's the scenario then? How is it ever possible you weren't Yotze yet? As soon as you picked it up to step out of the house, you were already Yotze. So what do you mean? What's the scenario? You weren't Yotze yet. So Amar Abayi, so Abayi says, Kishahafacho. You turn it upside down. If you're carrying it, like we, like we discussed earlier, you know, you would turn it upside down before making the bracha. So you specifically picked it up in a way not to be Yotze because you're going to bring it to Shul. You want to wait till you get to Shul to make the bracha. So you picked it up upside down. So you haven't been Yotze yet. Rava Amar, Rava says, and you only are Yotze when it's right side up, as we'll see later. Rava says, even if you didn't turn it upside down, you're carrying it out in a lulav holder, and you're not Yotze because you're not holding it directly. Gemara says, Rava who the Amar Rava himself was the one who said, if you take it by holding it on with a handle, it's considered taking, even if you didn't directly hold it, through another thing is considered taking it. So even if you're holding it in a vessel, isn't it like taking it? So the says, that's only if it's a, it's a way, it's a respectful way of taking it. A disgracing way of taking it, lo Amar. He would not say it. Lo, he would not say that. Um, so, so now, now the question is, what makes it disgraceful? Would you really take it out in a disgraceful? Meaning, there's a huge gap between kavod and bizayon. There's everything in the middle which is neutral, right? When we take it out in our lula folders, I wouldn't say it's bizayon. I wouldn't necessarily say it's kavod. It's just a convenient way of taking it. So, with Rashi, it sounds more like it has to be kavod in order to be considered like as an act of taking. Rashi right? says if you're holding on to it with like a nice silk handkerchief or something and you're using that to, to, as a handle to hold it, then it's considered like a, an act of taking. But if you're holding it in Rashi just as a kli, a vessel, it's not. A vessel isn't bizayon, but it's not kavos. So in order for it to be an indirect taking to count as an a taking, it has to be something that is seen as a respectful way of doing it. So this is actually a very relevant question because when we learned Rava earlier, um, I think it was you asked, right? What so meaning? And so what about every time I walk out of my house? I got my esrog in my nice esrog box, which is right side up, the esrog, and I got my lulav in my lulav holder, which is right side up, and it's why isn't it lekichay yedeiz avarachia? Why don't I yotze? Why can I make the bracha when I get to show? Now, we do say, even if you were yotze, you can still make the bracha before you did the nanuim. We do all like bracha. But it does seem that that is considered not to be with kichadar kavod. Well, the Gemara didn't say, well, you could, but you normally don't. You just take it. Right? You just walk out of your house with it. So why, so it, so you, so anyway, so it does seem that the Latikha Derch Kavod is a narrow, is defined narrowly, in most cases would not be that scenario. 
Now the question that Michael just said is, why didn't the Gemara give the answer about Kavana? Why did the Gemara just say you didn't have Kavana? Well, there's a debate whether Mitzvah need Kavana. Lack of Kavana, you still might be Yotze. Well, then Tosafos, well, why did they say he has negative Kavana? He had Kavana not to be Yotze. So maybe in theory it could have said that, but again, that's also like harder to detect into the obvious, and therefore, um, and that, but that is always a possibility. Let's read a little bit further. So the Gemara says like this. Um, so, um, look. Amar Rav Huna. Omar Hayy Rabbi Yossi. Said Rav Huna. Rabbi Yossi, who said you're exempt, he was to say, If you find a bird ola between, Rashi says agapayim, just means other dead birds by the foot of the altar, and you assume it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a sin, it's a, it's a bird brought as a sin offering. Now, you're a Kohen. Your mitzvah is to eat the sin offering birds, but the ola birds have to be burnt. Now, usually the Ola birds were in a different corner of the altar, on the floor of the altar. But it happened to be that because there was some overflow on one corner, this Ola bird is in the wrong place and it's with the Chathas birds. But you, very reasonably, assumed that it was a Chathas and you ate it. Va'achala, and you ate it. Pata, you're exempt. The Gemara says, My Kamash Malan, what is that teaching us? The Tabidvar Mitzvah Pata, that if you made an error when doing a Mitzvah, you're exempt. Hainu Hach, that's exactly what we've been teaching all along. The says, No. I might have thought in our Mishnah you made an error in a mitzvah but eventually you actually were culminating in a mitzvah you were going to take your lulav you made an error because you thought you were eating a chasas bird the low of a mitzvah but it didn't culminate in doing a mitzvah you were planning on doing a mitzvah, but in the end, what you did was just an Avera, right? You understand the difference, right? In one case, you actually are in the process of taking rule of. It's just, incidentally, along the way, you're Machal Shadid. Here, you, you were wanting to do a mitzvah, but you were in the process of only doing an Avera, of eating an Ola, not eating a Chata. So Kamash Malan, that that doesn't matter, that even if you're planning, even if you didn't culminate in a mitzvah, you're still exempt from the sin offering. I'll ask you on this with Yossi Omer it's Shabbos and you shecht an animal for a tamid for the daily sacrifice on Shabbos that was not checked four days before from blemishes but Shabbos and now even if it wound up it had no blemish if it did not go through the process of being pre-checked you're not Yotze and he says Chayiv you have to be Chatos the same Rebbe Yossi who normally says if you're doing a mitzvah you're exempt if you accidentally violate Shabbos and obviously you have to bring another Tamid that's the whole point you weren't Yotze so how do you explain that so maybe it's because you didn't in the end do a, do a mitzvah but you just got through saying that even if it didn't culminate in a mitzvah you're still exempt so forget that example but Itmar Lot was sent on it Amar Rav Shmuel Bar Chitai, Amar Rav Amnuna, Saba, Amar Rav Yitzchak Bar Ashayin, Amar Rav Huna, Amar Rav. So the whole tradition named Rav to go and say, "Hivio Milishka Sheinam Evukharim." You brought it from the chamber of sheep that were non, not pre-checked sheep, which basically means it was your own fault. That was a real negligence. You can't say you were distracted and preoccupied in the doing of a mitzvah and you should be let off the hook. Because number one, not only in that case did you not end up doing a mitzvah, which maybe you could still get off the hook, as we said, but also you were highly negligent in the fact that you wound up doing the wrong thing. And therefore, that by itself, or the combination of the two, of not culminating a mitzvah and that degree of negligence, that cannot exist. Okay.